When you think of visiting Chernobyl, you probably think of Pripyat first of all. You might picture its famous scenes, we all know them from TV of course, um, the abandoned tower blocks, the overgrown streets, the sagging doorway with a creepy broken doll in it, the classroom with gas masks scattered all over the floor. Yeah, of course all those dolls and gas masks have been placed there by the many, many tourists who've been there before you. I went to Chernobyl in 2017, before the big surge of visitors prompted by the recent HBO drama, and even then, Pripyat was well-trodden by tourists. Luckily I went on a cold December Tuesday, and my husband and I were the only people there. Apart from our two guides, of course, Igor and Nadia, and apart from the people who worked in the zone, at the checkpoints, the cafe, the power plant itself, but me and David were the only tourists on that chilly Tuesday. Yet, even though the zone was empty, it was easy to see where the thousands of others had gone before. Souvenir stalls at the checkpoints selling t-shirts, magnets, ice cream and, yes, cans of Pripyat air. There was graffiti, and those endless dolls and gas masks posed on every damp windowsill and every broken doorway. They were all put there, of course, for cool photos. So you're not a daring adventurer just because you've been to Chernobyl. Everyone else has been there before you. This was emphasised when our guide took us for lunch at the Café de Siatka inside the zone. And the cafe had a TV on the wall playing Lethal Weapon. Okay, it was dubbed into Ukrainian, but it was still Lethal Weapon. So it's hard to feel like you're adventuring in some wild radioactive zone when you have Mel Gibson chattering on the wall. So, Pripyat, everyone's been there. And those who haven't probably feel like they have, as the city, the Atomgrad, is so familiar to us. And so I'm happy to tell you that visiting Pripyat is just one small part of what we did on our visit. And it wasn't even the most interesting part. We went to Pripyat at the end of the day as the sun was starting to sink. The frosty leaves were crunching under our feet in the atomic twilight. And yes, I admit, I was starting to get tired. Here we were at the checkpoint to Pripyat, that notorious place, and... I was just thinking of the long drive back to Kiev and then a hot bath and a big meal in our clean white hotel. Going to Pripyat at the end of the day was almost an anti-climax. Perhaps because it seemed so familiar already, but also because the rest of the visit had been so fascinating. Because we'd seen things I'd never known about before. I thought I knew about Chernobyl before I went to Chernobyl. I didn't. I learned so much on that visit. We saw old graveyards rustling with ribbon, abandoned villages, a huge white palace of culture peeping through the trees with the hammer and sickle still over the door, a Soviet driving school with spindly trees spouting up and out of the guttering, a zoo of radioactive robots, and war memorials deep in an icy wood. And you think, why put a war memorial here? But then you realise it wasn't always a wood, it was once 
the main street of a lively village. What I'm trying to say is Pripyat isn't the most fascinating thing about visiting Chernobyl. It's the most famous, but perhaps fame has lessened its impact. Far more fascinating, I found, is the stuff in the trees, in the undergrowth. And then there's that gigantic thing which rears up from the trees, rising up and up into the sky. That huge metallic monster. That massive steel grid stretching along the horizon, like a huge radioactive climbing frame for giants. This is the Duga, nicknamed the Russian woodpecker. And that's what we'll look at today. Let me explain first what the Duga is. With a respectful nod to those of our listeners who I'm sure already know, it is, and I'm not going to get too technical here, as that's not my area of expertise, it is a huge radar which scanned the skies above the Soviet Union looking for an incoming nuclear missile attack. What's special about the Duga is that it's so large and so powerful that it can, or could, it is no longer operational, See over the horizon. A radio wave can only travel in a straight line. And that's no use if you're trying to see around the curvature of the Earth to keep an eye on those damn Americans to see if they've started nuclear war yet. So radar, like the Duga, could reach over the horizon. In effect, peering round the inconvenient curve of the globe. Why is it important to be able to see so far? Because we all know about the importance of early warning and detecting an incoming attack. You have mere minutes to react. If the radar couldn't detect a missile until it was over Soviet airspace, or even over Western Europe, it'd be too late. Seeing over the horizon meant they had a chance at actually detecting it as it launched, giving the Soviets a luxurious 25 minutes or so to work out the retaliation. How can it see over the horizon? I turned here to the excellent Tom Scott, who has a YouTube channel where he does short snippets of film investigating various scientific phenomena and oddities. And he had a nice three-minute explanation of how the Duga worked. Tom Scott tells us that the Duga would send out radio signals in a nice straight line, which we know 
is of limited use. But as the Duga was so powerful, it could send them up, 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 until they bounced off the ionosphere. They'd then ricochet back down and hit the Earth, and then send a scatter of signals back home to the Duga. Now, what's the point of that? So you're bouncing a lot of signals off the ground or off the ocean? How does that tell you whether a nuclear holocaust is hurtling through the sky towards you? Well, they would use the Doppler effect. The Doppler effect explains why a sound changes as an object whizzes past you, like an ambulance siren. If the Duga's radio waves bounced off a fast-moving target, such as a missile in flight, the Doppler effect would tell the signals as they ran back home to the Duga that this wasn't just a bit of earth or sea they'd bounced off, this was something moving fast. Let me just say that any errors in that explanation are mine and not the brilliant Tom Scott's, and I recommend his YouTube channel to you. Lots of little snippets of scientific wonder. So that is what the gigantic Duga was for. It needed massive power to be able to operate and send its signals out and over the horizon. And that's why it was sighted so close to Chernobyl. So it could suck plenty of juice from the nuclear plant. And that's why it still stands, because it's in the exclusion zone. Every other Duga array in the former Soviet Union has been dismantled, but not the one near Chernobyl. Arguably it should be, as it looks, uh, to use a Glaswegian word, sugarly. It looks fragile and shaky. It's a massive metal grid, or lattice, and it's hard to describe how awesome it is. I have some pictures of it on my Twitter account, at uh, Julie A. McDowell, which I took as I was standing beneath it. The Duga whistles and whines quietly in the cold Ukrainian wind, and spatters of snow and ice patter down onto you as you stand gopping up at it. Then you think, oh, um, maybe I shouldn't be letting this stuff drip down my neck. The main rules in the zone, after all, are don't touch the soil or drink the water. Maybe the same caution should be applied to rainwater which has trickled down the gigantic duga. However, although the thing looks delicate, it must be sturdy enough as plenty of visitors to the zone, both legal and illegal, have climbed it. This is forbidden, but there are videos all over YouTube of people mucking about on it. I get the impression that some guides might uh, go into the trees for a pee and then come back to find, oh no, some of my party have gone and climbed the Duga. I think you'd have to be mad to climb it. The thing is not maintained. When I walked around beneath it, uh, shards and spokes and spikes of metal lay piled up at one side as though they'd come loose. And spindly trees are weaving their branches in and out of its lower sections. And on the day I visited, we were told that a stalker, that's the nickname for illegal, unauthorised visitors, had fallen from it and died just the week before. 
So do not climb the Duggar, even though plenty of people do. The same rule applies to the tower blocks in Pripyat. You're no longer allowed to enter them, as they are, as with the Duggar, rusting and withering and crumbling, and they're not maintained. But we all know people do enter them. I suppose there's no point telling the Instagram generation that they can't pose next to the open lift shafts or up on the roofs. People want their pictures. Now, what did locals make of the gigantic Duga? It was secret, of course. It was a military object, and this was the Soviet Union, so come on. But it was too big to be hidden. Even if you lived far away, you could see the gigantic thing on the horizon. Plus, the land around Chernobyl is very flat, and on such a flat landscape... It stuck out like a shark's fin on smooth water. But if you looked at a map, it wouldn't be there. If I remember correctly, my guide Igor told me that any maps of the era said that the space taken up by the Duga was marked as a children's summer camp. Now, everyone could see the gigantic alien structure and knew it was nothing so cute and innocent. And so, as will always happen... Whispers started and rumours arose as to what this thing was. Those in northern Ukraine and southern Belarus who had a glimpse of the thing wondered if it was some government experiment to manipulate the weather. Not such a mad idea when we think that the Soviet authorities did indeed seek to control the weather. After the Chernobyl disaster, they used cloud seeding to force rain, so that huge radioactive cloud, otherwise drifting towards Moscow, would unloose its bounty over Belarus and spare the Russian capital. There's a lot more on that in the book Manual for Survival by Kate Brown, which is about Chernobyl, which I reviewed a couple of years ago for the Irish Times. Another popular rumour suggested that the alien-looking thing reaching up into the sky was used for mind control. This theory was bolstered by the weird incessant tapping sound that the Duga's radio waves sent out. Many radio stations and the shortwave radios of amateur enthusiasts who were listening on their sets in their sheds or attics elsewhere in Europe often found their ears invaded by the Duga's loud tapping. The sound was a mystery. The Duga, of course, was secret. And so some people worried that the sound was seeking to control their thoughts. Others, seeking more practical solutions, realised it was some kind of radio interference. And there were some foreign governments who actually lodged complaints with the Soviets that this thing, whatever the hell it was was interrupting their programmes. And that's where it got the nickname of the Russian woodpecker. (laughs) Regular listeners might realise this episode is late. 
I'm supposed to upload every Monday. Well, I gave myself last week off as it was my 40th on the 12th of December. And then, well, no excuses. <laughs> then I just felt low and slow and a bit sad. Pathetic, really. Went into a bit of a dip. But I pulled myself together and I'm back. I'm back and I'm 40. Over the past week, I've been really happy to see three new people join my Patreon. So let me say hello and thank you to Melissa Vavrensky. And Melissa, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. Drop me a note on Patreon if so, and I'll correct it. Also, Liz Murdoch and Brian Garland. And Linda Woolnuff has increased her monthly donation to the podcast. Linda has supported me here for quite a while. That's very kind of you, Linda, so thank you. Remember, it's because people donate money to the podcast through Patreon that I'll never subject you to adverts. You'll never find your nuclear horror interrupted with cheesy ads. If you want to contribute something each month, please go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo and you can choose the amount and you can cancel at any time without fuss. So, thank you everyone and I'm sorry this episode was late. Remember, I'm recommending Tom Scott's YouTube channel to you and whilst we're discussing YouTube, I can also recommend a channel called The Proper People. They are some uh, young American guys who explore abandoned buildings, hospitals, theme parks and shopping malls. Importantly, they do it quietly and respectfully. I thought listeners to this podcast might like that sort of thing, as I assume we have some bunker nerds listening. Also, there are a couple of episodes where they've gone into abandoned schools and hospitals, uh, always in America, and found old fallout shelters in the basements, uh, some still with drums of emergency water. So there are two recommendations for you on YouTube, Tom Scott and The Proper People. And of course, if you like Atomic Hobo, please do recommend this podcast to your friends. Word of mouth recommendations are always the best, I find. Remember to check me out on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, where I posted some pics of the Duga earlier today. And I'm also on Facebook under Nuclear Britain, but Twitter is definitely where I'm most active. So thank you all for listening, and I'll be back on Monday, unless I turn 40 again. <laughs>